0: Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with someone who knows Vegas inside and out.
1: This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Magic, the podcast.
0: Hushabye, hushabye, oh my darling, don't you cry. Guiding angels up above, take care of the one I love. You've
1: probably all seen the Jersey Boys. Heck, there was a great stage play of it right in Las Vegas. It played along the strip for a long time, one of the few Broadway musicals that actually worked in Vegas. It's been a movie. Everybody's heard of it. It's a great story, and everybody remembers that music. We got a story from our good friend Vinny over from the Bronx Wanderers this one's even better. He goes, is actually a better story. It's fascinating. And it's been captured in a book. The book is Hushabye, The Mystics, The Music, and The Mob. And we got one of the original uh, mystics, Al Contrera. Saw all this, lived it. Al, welcome. You guys were a bunch of guys that were kind of on the trouble side of the ledger, right? You guys were in a gang and so forth. How do you go from a gang to a, a great singing group?
0: Not easy. Not easy <laughs> at all. Hushabye came out in 1959, so prior to that, 1957-58, we were a bunch of guys that typically uh, hanging out on street corners like everybody did in Brooklyn at the time, trying to emulate the groups that had hit records at the time. You know, like Frankie Lyman, Teenagers, and the Dubs, and the, the Cleftones, and the Heartbeats. We, we just kept practicing and practicing on the street corners and till we thought we would uh, we would decide to venture out and take the subway from Brooklyn to New York City and go and visit all the famous uh, record labels their offices and of course little did we know that you can't just walk into an office. You have to make an appointment. We were really kind of rough around the edges, but we were hooked on this thing. This thing started to, to become part of our lives. Having, having a group of friends and finally figuring out who can sing and who can't sing, and that's the rough part, because some people cannot sing. They think they can. We just pushing and pushing and practicing and practicing. We finally figured out what we got. We got five guys and we're going to get this harmony down really, really well. So, like I said, we went into New York. We were told that uh, yeah, it's nice of you all to show up here, but we're not we're not ready. You just you can't knock on a door and walk in and record a record.
1: And doo-wop was such a big deal. Uh, people don't realize, back on the East Coast, particularly in New York and Philly and so forth, it, it was a part of the culture to get to where you got. You had to be real good, because there was a lot of people singing on those street corners to be able to do what you did. It takes a couple of things. It takes a lot of talent, and then it takes that big hit. How did you finally get a recording contract and then a number one record like that, I know, uh, actually, you thought you had one, they gave it to Dion, who was a super-duper star back then, but exactly. you got one anyway. Well, kind of run us through that story.
0: We we finally decided, after after knocking on doors, that we couldn't get in to see someone at the record company, and one of the secretaries told us, well, you got to make a demo recording, and we didn't even know what a demo was, so we uh, asked around a couple of people and finally through some friends of ours that were hanging out in the neighborhood. Uh, this, this is where part of the title of the book comes in with the mob because we went to the local wise guy on the corner and said, uh, you know, we want to make a record. We think we're good and how, we don't know how to go about it. But we knew that there were some affiliations between the mob and, and the re- recording business. He gave us a guy and he said to this guy he says listen uh, these kids are pretty good. He listened to us sing. he says, w- why don't you do something with them?" We little did we know that we found out later that this guy who was in the music business kind of he, he, he uh, owed this uh, gangster a lot of money and this was part of the, the payoff. So he said, look, we're going to go in and make a demo record. And then we says, oh, we heard that again, demo record. Okay, so this must be, he must know what he's doing. So we go in and uh, he sets it all up and he tells us, well, it's going to cost you um, $500 to make a demo record. Now, $500 in 1959 was an enormous amount of money. i say, you know, equivalent to $10,000 $10, or something to that effect. And and we, we didn't have that kind of money, so we, we took a loan out. So we we got together and we said, you know what, we have to make this demo and it's five hundred dollars. So we go to the local bank in Brooklyn and we walk in, this is to show you how green we were. We walk into the local bank and we walk up to the uh first guy in a suit and a desk and say, Well we wanna borrow five hundred dollars. And a guy looked at us like we were crazy, of course, and, and he said, well, what is it for? He said, I said, well, we're going to re- we're going to make a record and we're going to have a big hit and we'll pay you back. He goes, it doesn't work that way. You're going to have to, you know, get, you have to show something. Someone has to sh- show, uh, make some kind of collateral or you have to have somebody to co-sign. Well, those are two words we never heard before, you know, collateral and co-sign. So we said, All right, well, we'll figure it out. One of the guys in the group's father was an insurance salesman, and he knew what what, what that was, and we finally wound up getting this loan. Now we get the loan, we give the money to this guy, and he brings us into a studio, and we record some of the songs that we wrote, you know, basic doo-wop stuff that we sang on the corner, all with the intention of bringing it to uh, a record company at some point in time hopefully very, very shortly after that. So the guy leaves us in the recording studio and he says, well, the, the engineer was going to make you some demos, and then you, when you're done, you give me a call, tell me that you're all done. During this period of time, the recording engineer tells us, after, after this guy left, he says, you know, you guys are really good. We didn't realize how good we were. And he said, I'd like to introduce you to... Um, a manager who's who's recording a lot of groups, and he's right in the same building. It was 1697 Broadway, the same building that the Ed Sullivan Theater broadcasted show from. So we said, okay. So we never told him that we were affiliated already with the mob, you know. So he's, he says, yeah. He says this 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 uh, manager wants to come down and hear you. He calls him up. The manager's name was Jim Gripple. And Jim comes down and listens to us and he goes, why don't you boys come up when you're finished here, come up to my office on the 10th floor and we'll talk. So we go up and he says, I'm going to call Lori Records and tell them that I found somebody and I would like to bring you up there. We were like overwhelmed at this point. While we're sitting there, he's and this guy was notorious for lighting up cigarettes one after the other. He was a chain smoker. So I was sitting there. He's puffing our way on cigarettes. And he makes a call, and he goes, uh, Hi, Gene, this is uh, Jim Gripple. How are you? And all that. Gene was the president of the Records. And he goes, Listen, Gene, I got I got five pretty Italian boys here. Yeah. used to call us pretty boys <laughs> because this was the era of Frankie Avalon and Fabian and Bobby Rydell. you know, every, everybody right? Meant a lot
1: in those days, yeah, really men, did. Men,
0: absolutely. So he says, "I got five pretty boys here, and um, and they can really sing their asses off, and we're going to do." So I said, "Well, bring them up." So we go that same day. We go up and and audition in in person. We had our demos, but they wanted to hear us in person. And Gene Schwartz says, you know, I really like your sound, and it's kind of like a similar to to, to uh, Phil Cracolisi, the lead singer, had a had a very sweet voice, kind of like Dion's voice, and Laurie loved it. So he says, I'm going to uh, going gonna get two songwriters and tell them, and I'm going to ask them to write a song for you guys. They came up, and their name was uh, Doc Palmer and Mort Schumann. Mm-hmm. Now... Anybody who knows a little bit about the record business in those years, you know, Doc Palmer and Mort Truman were very successful songwriters. They wrote songs for Presley and, and the Drifters and, uh, I mean, major, major hits.
1: Yeah. And those days so, it was a big deal to have, be around these songwriters, right? Because it wasn't like when you think of the Beatles beyond that you know, everything was written by those groups and stuff. Back then those songwriters really uh, yeah. swung a lot of weight, right? At that time.
0: Of course not too many singers trying to make it at that point really wrote anything worthwhile. you know, some did, but not, not most of the groups, especially the ones that we we knew hanging out in Brooklyn. So we were thrilled, of course. Well, Doc and more Truman came back uh, a day later, a couple of days later, we got a call and we came up to the record company and they sang a played and sang Teenager in Love. And Morty played played the piano and, and Doc and Morty was singing the songs and showing us the parts. So wow, this is amazing. We were thrilled to death. Well, a day later, we get a call uh, again from the record company and says, you gotta come up into the office. And we go up in the office and uh, Gene Schwartz says, listen, we, we heard the version because they recorded it in the office. And we think this is a phenomenal song. Unfortunately, if we give this song to the Mystics, there's a chance you would get a hit. But if we give it to Dion and the Belmonts, we definitely know we'd have a hit, and we'd sell a lot more records. And that's what we need right now. We need a big hit, and we need to sell records. So we kind of understood, but yet we were a little disappointed. Yeah, that hurts. Well... But, but we didn't know. I mean, look, we didn't know that Teenager in Love was going to be the monster hit that it was. So he was right. He did a, a major business decision, and he was right. So he he gets uh, Doc Palmer and Moore Shore back up in the office. He says, can you write these boys another, another song? So on their way home that afternoon, they wrote Hushabye. above, take care of the one I love, oh, hush, oh, hush, hush oh, hush, hush, hush-a-bye. Oh,
1: oh, oh, oh. hush, hush hush-a-bye. hush-a-bye, hush-a-bye, oh, my
0: darling, don't you
1: cry,
0: garden angels up above, take care of and then we went back again into the office uh, the following day and, and they played Husherby for us and we recorded Husherby. It was just incredible how these two songwriters yeah to write two major songs.
1: Oh well, Hushabai is a great song and I remember I remember the first time I actually heard it was uh, when I saw American Graffiti and I think what a great song you know and it was on that album and so forth and oh right it just right right. You start yeah, hearing it at, been, the, at the end of Dances and so forth. It was a great song that kind of has really held up well. In some respects, right. it's held up in the same way the Teenager in Love has. It really, I guess, is an attribute to you guys especially, but, but also to that uh, songwriting duo that they could write things yeah. that we're still talking about 60, 70 years after the fact.
0: Amazing. Isn't it amazing? And yeah. even more amazing is that not only did I write the book, but we're still working off off that hit that was so many years ago. Well, I remember still-
1: Alan Freed, who is kind of a hero of mine, because I, I think what he did at that time was so huge and so important to the whole people that love rock and roll, and I'm one of them, but it was so important. And he used to close his show with it, which is, which is really a cool uh, little factoid oh, that people don't realize.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well... You know at, at that time there was um, a lot of different things going on with DJs and record companies and uh, our manager said I I had nothing to do to do with this but he said that Alan Freed called him and said he wants to you guys on his Saturday night uh television show and he's going to close the show with Husherby and he we did it and and then he said to us that night after we did the show again we were thr- as thrilled as you were to meet Alan Freed. You know, it was amazing and he said I'm going to close all my shows every Saturday night and he did that for a few quite a few weeks. So it really helped with getting the record out there and and so I I would think that Alan Freed had a lot to do with Making Hushabai the hit it was.
1: I want people to remember the name Hushabai because that's this book, Hushabai: The Mystics, The Music, and the Mob. You have got to get a hold of it. I want to talk a little with Al here about. There's a whole mob story. I mean, you mentioned those guys and so forth, but I mean, we're talking about people in jail and scary stuff. Kind of give us just an overview because when Hushabai gets hot, when you could go out and really storm the the nation and so forth. Yep. You guys got into yep. some trouble, so kind of just kind run it through a little bit, and then you got to get the book to really read the whole thing of this, is because it's incredible.
0: We record Hushabye, and then right after that, we followed up with our second song, it was called Don't Take the Stars, uh, backed with So Tenderly, and it's selling, and things have gone really well. we got a lot of a lot of work going on. And we've got a lot of work in different places, and we're traveling all over the country. Are you Actually, making money did,
1: now? I mean, are, is this a time when you started well, to make all money?
0: Well, we made a little money. No one ever made money. I mean, when you're yeah. talking about yeah. money. we uh, I, I go through a lot of that in the book where I, I narrowed it all down to, to figure out that you know, we might have been making minimum wage by the end of the year <laughs> but we were having a fun we were having a great time so our manager booked us on a tour right after Hushabide, with the uh with gac artists and our first tour we go out and it was kind of like um uh, first time we ever got we're on a tour with the buses and the whole thing and you know, some of the people on the tour, we had Johnny and the Hurricanes was the band and we had Frankie Ford with us and uh, Freddie Cannon with Tallahassee Lassie. Wow. All, all of the people on the tour all had top 10 records. So it was really, we were thrilled to meet these people and, and vice versa. They were thrilled to meet us. You know, it was like kind of really crazy. So we do we do the tour and we come back from the tour and now it's kind of like December of 1959, just waiting for the new year to come to turn around. And back in Brooklyn, we were hanging out for the holidays in Brooklyn. And one of the lead singers, Phil, uh, all of us, even prior to recording this, we used to hang out in a gas station and still, you know, late hours at night, fix our cars, talk, Mm -hmm. hang out, you know. And well, one day some, wise guys decide to hold up the gas station and they come in. Uh, I wasn't there. Phil, Phil was there. They come in and they hold up the gas station and it was in a, a real unfortunate accident because the attendant at the time was fixing the tire and they pointed a gun at him and he didn't know what to do. He, he put his hands up in the air accidentally touched the gun with the tire iron, the gun went off and shot him. And at, from that point, it was chaos because the police came, the attendant died, and everybody who was involved in the holdup ran away. And Phil was left there holding this guy in his arms. And so they said to Phil, "They said, do you know who these people were? Now, he kind of knew who they were because we're you know everybody in the neighborhood, but they were but they were wise guys and they were tough guys and he is one thing you didn't do when you when you grew up in the neighborhood and you uh, you did not rat on anybody, so he said, no, I don't know them but uh but uh, but you know I don't know who they were, and do you remember what they were and, no, I didn't really see it and so it was one of these things where they took him down to the police station and he looked through photos. And although he saw some of them, he said, I I don't remember anybody in in any of these things. Well, as it turns out, the detectives finally caught up with one of them because of, uh, he had left the car in their haste to run away. They dropped the keys to the car in the, and they couldn't start the car, so they ran away, left the car there. When the detectives came around to look at the scene, they noticed keys on the gutter by the, by the street. And they tracked it all down. They went in, went into each car, and they found that that was the car. The car was registered to, to this guy's uh, stepfather. They went to his house, and they said, where is, where is your son? Oh, he's out for the night, and that's how they finally got to him. I don't want to go into too much detail. Yeah, right.
1: Well, so much they, of it's in the book, and it's just—it's just great yeah. reading because it, it, it kind of reminded me, like, wow, this is great. This is like music combined with like the Sopranos or one of these things. And you know what? What I remember right. in that thing, I, I, yeah. We, like I said, we want to let people read the book because it really is just too much to cover. But yeah. I was surprised. You tell me about that one uh, detective or some. He really had it out for you guys, right, where this guy was going to dedicate his life to
0: screwing you over. He did. He did. He. It, it, it was one of those guys, you know, as we were growing up at 16, 17, now don't forget at this point, 1959, I was, I was 19 years old, 18, 19 years old, and I was the youngest one in the group, so we started singing on the street corners in 1957 56 57 we were all young kids this detective always came always came with a with a few patrolmen and always broke up the crowd and always want didn't want us to sing and didn't want us to you can't hang out here and i i don't want to get into details but they Mm -hmm. they were not a friendly bunch of law enforcement people you know I mean, we would walk away wealth from, from from bats and stuff like that so uh, and we weren't the friendliest of young guys either so we wound up having some words with these people and over and over and he uh, he told us he says you know you guys that think you're tough one day I'm gonna get guys I'm gonna put you all in jail and this is Kind of a uh, was his that's what he wanted to do it was his legacy He wanted to put any hung out in the street corner that he didn't think was the right kind of teenager to, he wanted to put them away. so when he saw that opportunity that once he figured out that Phil did not know these people or did know the people when he said he didn't know the people yeah. he he went after him big time and then it was explained later when they got them all they finally caught them all it was explained later that phil really was not involved in this thing and they wouldn't let it go so we struggled for the first first couple of months we didn't even want to tell the record company we didn't want to tell anybody but it was inevitable at that point that we had to say something to, to all the to everybody involved and say look uh, we we're not sure he's going to come out. So he wound up doing uh, two years in in prison for something that all he did was witness. Yeah. But it was this detective that pushed this whole thing.
1: Well, when I was going through the book, I mean, that's one of the things that's really fascinating about that. You know, a lot of times, uh, especially when you talk about things from the 50s, you figure it's, you know, good guys versus the bad guys. And it and it just wasn't. And, you know, you can see where part of it was. You guys had some talent, but that probably annoyed the hell out of them. But you didn't have enough money to fight them that way. So it was a way this guy could really could abuse yeah. his power and really...
0: Uh, yeah, there was really not uh you know we we want we get a lawyer of course and and the lawyer did the best he could and he even it, it just is another twist of fate, but at the last minute when the trial came up, because it took a few months, quite a few months for the trial to come up, well once the trial came up, the lawyer got enough signatures and enough testimony to show the judge that uh Phil really wasn't there and wasn't involved and all the other people signed um, papers to that effect. Just the way things happen are just incredible. At the last minute, the judge got sick, and they put in a, a stand-in judge who didn't know anything about the case, nor knew anything about the deal that the lawyer said. Look, if I get enough testimonies the paperwork and all this of that people, that bill was really not involved, and the judge agreed originally to say, "Well, you know what? I'll give him. I, I can't let him off, but I'll, I'll give him, uh, you know, a, a mild, very mild sentence." The stand-in judge didn't know this agreement was going on, and he gave he gave Phil two years. Some of the other guys got. Well, one of them was a was a three time loser, so he got life imprisonment. Some of the other people got some really tough sentences because it was it was man it was actually a hold up that uh, resulted in a death wasn't wasn't a a minor thing as
1: I look at the group the mystics though uh, to me it's fascinating that your career gets kind of Cut from behind, right? So you can't get. And yet, we're still talking about the Mystics to this day. Did, right. the, did the American Graffiti thing help? Because I, I really remember that song stood out as one of the really good songs of a very good soundtrack that came out in. Uh, I guess it was the. It was in the nineteen seventies, I believe.
0: All those things help, you know. Well, the, it, it was in. It was in a couple of movies. It, uh, you know, Stand by Me. It was was featured in the Mira in the, in the graffiti yeah and those things helped but that was like kind of later you know like the yeah. years went by because Phil went away this is another interesting thing and just shows you how 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 life is so random when Phil was away our manager says well look you know we have to record so you guys got to find yourselves a lead singer you know there was a few a, a few more than a few young people hanging around at our manager's office because we we just we were young guys we had a big hit and everybody figured well you know if if he did it for them he could do it for us so his his office was always full of young people writing songs and uh, auditioning and stuff like that and he said okay so we're going to have to Find somebody, and the record company says, "Well, we have to record. This is the date we're going to record. We really didn't have a lot of time. We got to learn a couple of songs." So, we record company picked out a couple of songs, and we uh, there was a young guy in the office who was always hanging around, playing his guitar, writing songs, always trying to figure out what to do next, and <laughs> and we hired him. And the record company didn't wanna didn't wanna make him a part of the group but they wanted to hire him as a voice as a yeah. you know an extra and they would pay him separately you know to just to sing with us because he had a really good voice to harmonize well his name was paul simon <laughs> now he wasn't the paul simon that we all know at the time he was just starting out well look steve if i knew he was <laughs> going to be God Paul Simon, I think I would have handcuffed myself to him. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah.
1: Well, he's he, sang, he sang different times. Ty- you know, his talents were a little different than what you guys had, though, too. You know, I mean, just different times. His stuff was was yeah. much... It was, like, it was like they took yours and kind of really slowed it up, you know, when he did this early stuff. Art Garfunkel.
0: Yeah, he wasn't even with Art Garfunkel at right. the time. I mean... I, they knew each other but this was like you know 1960 early 1960 when all this was going on so he recorded with us and and, uh, and then we said thanks very much and he went on and pursued his career which was wonderful and we went on and Pursued our career, which wasn't so wonderful. So we had to get another lead singer because we were, according to our contract, we had to do so many songs. All while hoping that some, by some miracle, our lead singer would come out of jail, which didn't happen so quickly. And the the next lead singer that was hanging out in the office was a guy by the name of Jay Trainer. Jay Trainer tried out we tried out a whole bunch of young guys to sing and Jay was the one who's not only closest to looking a little bit like Phil but also singing like Phil and the most important thing was he could fit into Phil's suit because we couldn't we, we couldn't get new suits so we recorded with Jay Trainer and Jay Trainer um, one of the songs we did was White Cliffs of Dover and, and, and it really didn't get legs like Hushabite did Don't Take the Stars but it, it did okay it did locally did really really well Jay ran into some trouble with our manager which I, I'll it's explained in the book and, and our manager fires him at the time, there were a few other guys who were singing in the office who were trying to record, and they were called the Harbor Lights. And the members were uh, Kenny Vance, and uh, Sandy, and a few other guys, and they wound up, they got together with Jay Trainer and they formed Jay and the Americans. So it's amazing how these things all find their own way, in in time and space and wind up that these things probably that's where it was supposed to wind up
1: it's all covered in the book it's a great read it's my suggestion is Listen to Hushabye. You can go on iTunes, buy it. It's it's a great song from that era. If you like yeah. Do up, it's one of the greats. But the book is Hushabye: The Mystics, the Music, and the Mob. Al, yeah. what a great story! Where can people get? It? I assume they can get that anywhere, right?
0: Oh yeah, Amazon, uh, Car- Car- uh, Barnes and Noble. Uh, I guess all, all the major book outlets. I also did the Audible version. Which, yeah, which is really really cool so i did it with uh with a little music in and out and uh, it came out really really nice most difficult thing i ever did was the audible version aside from writing a book yeah, it's not
1: easy book. huh cuz you have to no. read it exactly the way you write it and that sounds easy but well, it's really not
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of like and you would know you you have to do it with feeling and you know it's it's yeah. that something that you, you I'm not used to doing, and we, but it came out really nice. So that's on Audible.com. Also, I guess it's part of yeah. Amazon. And the the really good news is, recently, uh, I have a, some friends of mine who've been out in in Hollywood uh, for many many years, and they're involved in the movies, and they know the story. And they called me up, and they says, "We think we think that we're going to try to push this because some one of the guys." has a uh, connection with Netflix and he says this would make a perfect Netflix series.
1: The book again, Hushabye, it's a great song, it's a great book too, you gotta get it. Al, thank you so much, best of luck with the book and uh, hopefully we can talk again sometime.
0: Oh, thanks so much, Stephen, thanks for your time, I really appreciate it. Hushabye, hushabye, oh my darling, don't you cry, got i